Thank you for listening to First Baptist Church of Conway. It's our prayer that this message will be both an encouragement and a challenge to you as you grow in faith. If you missed this week, we hope you'll join us next Sunday at 9 a.m. for Sunday school or 10 a.m. for worship. Now, here's this week's message. Morning. So, I will never forget the day that I joined the, the military. I had been talking to a recruiter for several months, had gone through several different medical checks, filled out more paperwork than I knew was possible. But the one thing that stands out in particular that I'll never forget is when I had to stand in front of a group of people, I had to raise my right hand and say the oath of enlistment. See, that's the one thing every person in the military has, whether they're enlisted or an officer, all of them have to swear an oath. In fact, it doesn't matter what paperwork you've signed beforehand, you are not an official member of the military until you take that oath. And it felt like a big deal because it was a big deal. You see, every group of people, and you already know this, but every group of people have rites of passage. They indicate inclusion, acceptance, and membership. For instance, lawyers have, well, the bar exam. Teachers have the praxis. Pastors have ordination. Police officers get the badge after they go through all that training. And countless movies have been made about what evidently college fraternities make people go through. I don't know. I wasn't a part of one. But you know, you've seen the movies. You see, rites of passage marks an entrance into the new body, a new community of people. All groups, all communities have things like this. Something that marks and signifies that you are now a part of this group. And you know, for Christians, we have the same thing. There are two things that we have that celebrate uh, this rite of passage or being a part of these new people, the people of God. We have a baptism and then the Lord's Supper. We call it communion. Baptism marks the entrance into the new covenant, the new community of people that you are a part of. And communion renews that covenant. We'll talk about that later at a different time. But communion is a time when you go and you renew that that, that covenant you made, that God made with you, that you renew that uh, with the Lord. But today in particular, we're going to focus on baptism. And my goal for this morning is very simple. I want to strengthen your understanding of baptism so if people talk to you or ask you about it, you can have a conversation, explain to them why you believe what you believe. And if you haven't been baptized, well then, I want to encourage you to take that step of faith and be baptized. And here's what we're going to look at this morning. We're going to look at three things. We're going to look at why we practice baptism. We're going to look at the requirements to be baptized. And we're going to talk about what baptism means. And so first up, I want to share with you, why do we as Christians practice baptism? If you have your Bible with you, you can open it up. It's Matthew 3, but just to give you a heads up, we're going through a lot of scripture today. It may be kind of hard. You may want to write these down and go through them on your own, but all of them will be back here on the screen. You see, John the baptizer, John the Baptist, was baptizing in the wilderness, preparing people for the Lord. It was a baptism of repentance where people were coming, repenting from their sins, getting ready for the one who would come after him. 
And it says this in Matthew 3, 13. It said, then Jesus came from Galilee to Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you come to me? You see, John knew that Jesus didn't need a baptism of repentance. Jesus hadn't sinned. He tells Jesus, hold on, you're coming to me? No, I need to be baptized by you. But Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. You see, Jesus was being obedient to the Father in his baptism. He didn't need to repent. This is probably the first event in the life of Jesus where he is showing or foreshadowing what was to come. Although he is without sin, Jesus goes and is baptized, identifying with sinners. Scholar Leon Moore says this. He says, Jesus might as well have been up there in front, standing with John, calling on sinners to repent. Instead, he was down there with sinners, affirming his solidarity with them, making himself one with them in the process of the salvation that he, that he would in due course accomplish. So Jesus was publicly baptized. And then it says, John, then John consented. And as soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. And if you didn't know, the word baptized is a verb. And it means literally, what it means is to dip or to immerse. That's why it's, Jesus isn't standing on the edge of the water. They didn't bend down to get water. Jesus went into the water and was baptized or dipped or immersed. That's the, the normal mode of, of baptism has always been by immersion. And then verse 16, it says, At the moment, at that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and aligning on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son whom I love with him I am well pleased. You see, Jesus didn't need to repent. Jesus was identifying. It was foreshadowing what was to come. And we see that at his obedience, God was pleased with Jesus. In fact, did you know at your obedience, when you go forward and become baptized, God is pleased? We see here that God affirms this act of baptism. And so why are we baptized? Well, first off, we see Jesus was baptized. And you are always in good company if you were doing what Jesus did. Would you agree with that? Yeah, as Jesus' followers, when we were following him and doing the things that he did, it's, we're like on a good course for that. But it's not only because he was baptized. It's mainly because he commanded us to be baptized. After Jesus rose from the grave, he spent 40 days teaching his followers before he ascended back to heaven. He left them with this, this, pat, or this, this command or this commission, we call it. Matthew 28, 17 through 20, it says, When they saw him, they worshipped him, but some doubted. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. That's the, the main emphasis here, to make disciples. And what do you do with these disciples? He says, well, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. See, the Great Commission is the marching orders for Christians. Did you know the order from Christ is for you and I to make disciples? What's inferred here is evangelism. In order to help someone grow to be like Christ, first we've got to tell them about Christ. 
And when we tell them about Christ, well, then they, and they give their life to Christ. That's what's affirmed in baptism. They are baptized, and then we teach them to obey all that he has commanded. But notice what Jesus says. I think this is so important. Jesus doesn't say, teach them what I commanded. As if all you were to do is follow a bunch of rules and memorize things. Jesus says to teach them to do what? Obey what I've commanded. Not just, here's what Jesus said. Jesus says to obey what he has said that we must do. Which means, if Jesus has all authority as he claims... If Jesus really did predict his own death and resurrection and actually pull it off, we should probably obey everything he says. And just for clarity, one thing we must be obedient to is being baptized. Because he says for us to baptize and to be baptized. And so we baptize for two reasons. One, well, Jesus was baptized. We see that very clearly in Matthew. This is the same letter which we saw Jesus was, went into the water and be baptized. Now he's saying to do that like Jesus had did it right here at the end. So number one, he, he was baptized. Number two, he tells us to be baptized. And so, okay, Brian, I get it. We are to be baptized. We see that. In fact, all Christian churches, baptized. It's a common thing. We all understand it's important. But, well, who can be baptized? What are the requirements? Well, lucky for us, the story doesn't end with Jesus ascending back. We have the next book, or the book that follows the life of the disciples after Jesus, called the book of what? Acts. Yeah, the book of Acts. And so after Jesus ascended back to heaven, he told the disciples to go to Jerusalem, the main hub, the city, and wait for the Holy Spirit. Well, they didn't really know what that meant, but they followed Jesus. They went to the upper room and waited. And then what we're told is that the Holy Spirit came... It got really loud and it was kind of thunderous to where everybody in the city knew that something was going on in that building. So people kind of gathered around and Peter being Peter, well, he couldn't help himself. He sees a big crowd. See, First Baptist preacher right here. Sees a big crowd. He goes out there and starts preaching, starts telling them about Jesus. In a nutshell, you can read it. It's Acts chapter 2. You can read his whole sermon. But in a nutshell, he shares with them how Jesus... Whom they killed, he points out, is both the Lord and the Messiah. And it says in Acts 2, 37, it says, When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? I mean, if Jesus is the Lord and Messiah like you said he is, what is our next step? Verse 37, he says, or verse 38, he says, Repent. And what's next? And be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the Holy Spirit. This, the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. So what do we do? Peter said, repent, turn from your ways, give your life to Jesus, who he just spent several minutes explaining to him who he was, and then be baptized. And he said, in fact, this promise of getting the Holy Spirit and, and being able to rely on God, this is not just for you. This is for all your children. This is kind of the standard now. What do you do when you hear the message of Jesus? You repent and be baptized. And this is, and there's no kind of maybes, this is without a doubt the constant pattern in the New Testament. A confession of faith or repentance and then baptism. 
Because look what happens in Acts 2, 41. It says, and those who accepted the message were what? Baptized. And about 3,000, 3,000 people received, uh, and about 3,000 people were added to that number that day. That is a lot of people to baptize. But we would do it here, okay? No problem. 3,000, we will figure it out, I promise you. But notice, it doesn't say, well, and then some other people who were baptized who might accept the message one day later down the road. The people who were baptized were those who accepted the message, who received Christ. And this pattern continues. I'm going to kind of like machine gun some verses at you real quick. Acts 8, 20, Acts, excuse me, Acts 8, 12 and 13. It says, but when they believed Philip, as he proclaimed the good news of the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized both men and women. Simon himself believed and was baptized. Acts 18.8 says Cyprus, or yeah, Cyprus, the synagogue leader and his entire house believed in the Lord and many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were. Right, notice that word believe is always before baptism. And there are several other, other examples other, where every time it's either they've repented or they believe in Jesus and then they are baptized. Anglican scholar, who believes differently about baptism, but even he says, Anglican scholar, Michael Bird says, undoubtedly, conversion and baptism go hand in hand in the New Testament. That's not debated. And so we baptize because Jesus commands us to be baptized. And the requirements for baptism is a belief in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And this makes perfect sense when we then allow the New Testament to tell us what baptism actually is. Because what is the meaning? That's important, isn't it? What is the meaning? Well, number one, baptism is where our faith goes public. Look at this. Matthew, we already looked at it, Matthew 20, 19. Jesus says, therefore, go make disciples of all nations, baptizing them... What I want to point out is this next part. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. What does in the name of mean? There's only one thing it can possibly mean, and I'll let two scholars tell you. Craig Bloomberg states, in or into the name means declaring allegiance to or becoming associated with the power and the authority of Jesus. R.T. France comments on this passage by saying, it is a commitment to, in the name, literally into the name, implying entrance into an allegiance, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, all three of whom interestingly were involved in the events of Jesus' own baptism. Jesus thus takes his place along with the Father and the Spirit as the object of worship and the disciples' commitment. You see, in the Great Commission, when he tells them to be baptized in the name, name of there is no other way to understand it. Jesus is saying they are pledging their allegiance to the Father, the Son, the Trinitarian God, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Baptism is where your faith goes public. It's where we're committing to Jesus and his people. See, there's no such thing as a secret disciple of Jesus. It's always been a public thing. As Jesus publicly died for you, we publicly confess him. In fact, it's our first act of evangelism where we are sharing with people our faith in Jesus Christ. And number two, baptism symbolizes our union with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection. Paul says this in Romans 6, 3 through 4. 
He says, or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. And so when we are baptized, we are plunged in the water. We are identifying with the the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. The only people who can claim to have a new life, as Paul says, as Christ was raised from the dead in the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. The only people who can live a new life are those who have given their life to Jesus Christ. The only people who can claim to have, who, who want to identify with Jesus are those who profess faith in Jesus. Millard Erickson says, but if, as we state in our discussion of the meaning, baptism is truly a symbol, it's not merely an arbitrary sign, then we are not free to change the mode. You see, the whole point of baptism, it's a symbol of, of what has happened, what Christ has done. And so when we baptize, that's why we immerse, for one, that's what the word means, but second, it symbolizes what Christ has done in you and how we're identifying with him going under into the grave and being raised in a new life. Our immersion is the only way that symbology can be carried out. But that's not the only verse. He says this a couple other places. Colossians 2, 11 through 12. It says, In him you were also circumcised with the circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ. Having been, what is this circumcision by Christ, Paul? He's going to explain, comma, having been buried with him in baptism. Buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God who raised him from the dead. See, there's a lot to unpack, and we're not going to do it all this morning. But as circumcision, you probably remember for the Old Testament, was a sign the Israelites had to do to show they were the people of God. Baptism is that for us. But in baptism, we are buried with him, and we were raised through faith. What's important to see here? is that it's through our faith in the working of God that we've been raised from the dead. Baptism symbolizes that. Galatians 3, 26, 27. Paul says, So in Christ Jesus you are all children of God through what? That's very important. You are a child of God through what? Faith, right? Faith saves you. You become a child of God through your faith in Jesus Christ. And then he says, For all of you who were baptized into Christ... Have clothed yourself with Christ. Baptism does not save you. Baptism doesn't impart some saving grace. Your faith is what saves you. Jesus Christ alone does that. And baptism is where we take it public and it symbolizes our death and resurrection and this new life or the fact that we've taken off the old self and clothed ourselves with Christ. That's an imagery constant throughout the Bible. Taking off the old, putting on the new. Millard Erickson states, he says, baptism is then an act of faith and a testimony that one has been united with Christ in his death and resurrection, that one has experienced spiritual circumcision. It is a public indication of one's commitment to Christ. So why are we baptized? We baptize because Christ commands us to be baptized. The requirements for baptism is a belief in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. Because baptism is where you take your faith public. 
And if you haven't believed in Jesus, if you haven't given him your life, well, then you can't go public with it. So baptism serves as your public declaration of faith, and baptism symbolizes. It's a symbol of our identification with the Savior's death, burial, and resurrection. And when you bring all this together, maybe you've heard of this before, this is what we call believer's baptism. The scriptures teach that baptism is for believers and symbolizes the change that Christ has already worked in our lives. Not that he might do some way down the road, but that he has done. Wayne Grudem states, baptism pictures Christ's redemptive work, my response in faith as I come to be baptized, and then God's application of the benefits of redemption to my life. You see, believer's baptism, I hope you've noticed what I've shown you is Scripture. Scripture teaches in believer's baptism, which means one thing that's different for us as Baptists is we do not practice what some call or what's called infant baptism. We only practice believer's baptism. That's a big thing for Baptist churches, which means you must have a firm understanding of the gospel, what he's done in your life before you are baptized. And again, this is very different from other denominations, perhaps denominations that you grew up with. But what I want you to know, I want to give you a brief history to understand how big of a deal this is and why it is the way it is. You see, as Baptists, our understanding of baptism is rooted deeply and solely on the Bible. And I cannot stress that enough. One thing you have to understand about Baptists and where we come from is we were not part of what's called the Reformation. Anybody here remember the Reformation from history? Yeah, a couple of us could. You history buffs, you're going to love this, okay? Let's, I'm going to take you back to history class. Remember in the 16th century, there was an uprising in the Catholic Church, the one church at that time, which had massive religious and political ramifications. Maybe you've heard of people like Martin Luther or Zwingli or John Calvin. These men and others wanted to reform the Catholic Church. This is what that means. They wanted to correct false teachings within the church, but they never wanted to break away from the church. They never wanted to abandon it. And in 1517, it, it really started, and Luther um, nailed his theses to, to the wall. But this happened in Germany, Switzerland, and, and really all over the world. But also during this time, during this period of the Reformation, England was going through its own Reformation in the church. Remember the king didn't particularly like what the pope said about who he could marry and who he could divorce? Remember that? So he said, you know what? I'm done with you. I'm going to start my own. We're going to call it the Church of England. All right, and that was in 1934. Or as we call it, Anglicans. Same thing, right? We just call it a little different. Church of England or Anglican. And from the 16th century reformation of these leaders standing up against the Catholic Church, we get denominations like Anglicans, Lutherans, Presbyterians, Methodists, because Methodists just come from Anglicans. That's all that is. It's Anglican here in America when Wesley and them came. All these denominations are spin-offs from the Roman Catholic Church. Although they never intended to break away, once they got kicked out, which is what happened, then they started their own thing, their, their kind of spin. Baptist... We trace our roots back to what's called the separatist movement. How many people have heard of that? Okay, a couple of us. That's all right, good. That's why we're talking about the separatist movement in England. 
Though England was Protestant because their king has separated from the Catholic Church, they still practiced the Catholic rituals, what they knew. But the separatists thought that worship should only include elements that were taught in the Bible. The rituals that the church had come up with, they rejected. They said, we want to only practice what comes from the Bible. So there's a big difference here. The reformers wanted to fix the church. The separatists said, we don't want anything to do with the church. Now, at first, a lot of the separatists were Puritans who tried, but then they gave up. They all went on their own. They said, you know what? We're going to form our own congregations. We don't need all those rituals. We're going to base it solely on the scriptures. And so they started their own congregations, and they didn't want the pope or the king to tell them what to do. They said each congregation should have its own autonomy. Starts to sound like a Baptist church now, doesn't it? They said, we want want to do our own thing, right? Works perfect when it gets to America, okay? And that's what happened. So Baptist, and so, hold on, let me go there. And so this is why, uh, let me keep going. Yeah, so they wanted their own autonomy, and instead of a pope or the king telling them what to do, who was their authority? God through what? The Bible. Some of you have heard comment to me, Baptists have always been known for the Bible. Right. Because we don't have a pope or they don't give us a book that we have to follow. The book we follow is this. And I don't mean that rudely, but we don't have a book that tells us how to do things. We derive ours from what we believe the scriptures teach. And so the first Baptist church in America was founded by Roger Williams, a separatist. When he came to America, and then it spun off from there. So when it comes to church practices for Baptists, our DNA is not the Catholic Church. It's not the rituals from the church. It's always been the scriptures. Our DNA as Baptists is to reject the high church and the authority from somewhere out there who tells us how we have to do things. One of those things they rejected was infant baptism, solely based because of the Bible. You see, in modern scholarship has spoken pretty loud on this issue. James Dunn, leading New Testament scholar, who says this. He says, for it has to be recognized that infant baptism can find no real support in the theology of baptism, which any New New Testament writer can be shown to his spouse. And the more we recognize the primary function of baptism throughout the first decades of Christianity was to serve as a means of expressing the initiate's faith and commitment, the less justified in terms of Christian beginnings would the practice of infant baptism appear to be. He's a first century historian and scholar. Everett Ferguson, a New Testament scholar at Harvard type, I always feel it's important when someone's from Harvard to say that. I don't know why, but he's a Harvard type wrote a scholarly book a couple years ago on a comprehensive study on baptism. Listen, no one's going to rival this book. It's over 900 pages, academic pages, which means boring, right? 900 pages of research on baptism in the first five centuries of the church. This is the title. Let me know how many of you want to buy it. I'll purchase it for you. It says, Baptism in the Early Church, History, Theology, and Liturgy in the First Five Centuries. Well, in the conclusion section, here's what he says. He says, There is general agreement 
that there is no firm evidence for infant baptism before the later part of the second century. This fact does not mean it did not occur, but it does mean that supporters of the practice have a considerable chronological gap to account for. A couple hundred years. Many replace the historical silence by appeal to theological or sociological considerations. He says the most plausible explanation for the origin of infant baptism is found in the emergency baptism of sick children expected to die soon so that they would be assured of entrance into the kingdom of heaven. There was a slow extension of baptizing babies as a precautionary measure. It was generally accepted, but questions continued to be raised about its uh, propriety in the, into the 5th century. And we can go back, you can see church fathers saying it shouldn't be. It became the usual practice in the 5th and 6th centuries. It wasn't until four or 500 years after that it became a normal practice in the church. Now, if that wasn't enough, in 1955, a report was released by the Joint Committees on Baptism, Confirmation, and Holy Communion from the Church of England. The Church of England, again, are Anglicans. And they do practice infant baptism. But here's what they readily admit publicly. They said, It is clear that the recipients of baptism were normally adults and not infants. And it must be admitted that there is no conclusive evidence in the New Testament for baptism of infants. All we can say is that it was possible that the household said to have been baptized may have included children. But at any rate, it is clear that the doctrine of baptism in the New Testament is stated in relation to the baptism of adults, as well as was also the case, with two or three exceptions, in the writers of the first three centuries. In every recorded baptism, case of baptism in the New Testament, the gospel has been heard, accepted in the condition of faith, and presumably of repentance, has been consciously fulfilled prior to the recipient of the sacrament. Which says, if even the Anglican church says it's not biblical, it's not there. It's a practice the church came up with. And I'm just letting you know if you want to look back at Catholicism to where are they. We've rejected all sorts of things they've done. But why do they still practice it? I think one thing Baptists can appreciate is sometimes traditions. Sometimes traditions of the faith can reign even when it's not logical or biblical, can it? Sometimes we hold to these traditions even when it kind of goes against what we should be doing. You see, infant baptism doesn't have biblical support. That's why as Baptists, we do not believe that infant baptism is actually baptism. It can't be because it doesn't meet the requirements the Bible lays out and explains for what baptism is. At best, it's a baby dedication, which we do do those. That's why in order to become a member of any Baptist church, you must become immersed and be baptized after your confession of faith in Christ. And you see, baptism is a pretty big deal, not just for Baptists. We just get our name from it. But for all Christians, we just happen to affirm believers' baptism because we don't carry on the traditions and the rituals of the Catholic Church. And this, that's what they choose to do. We're not them for a reason. Not because of church history, but solely because of the Bible. And I firmly believe, and perhaps you do too, that the Bible is worth standing on when it comes to issues and matters of our faith. And what you may not know, something's pretty important. This break away from the practice of infant baptism, it cost many people their life. You see, a lot of people, and maybe you know this, but during the Reformation, you had um, 
Catholics and Lutherans weren't agreeing, but there's one thing they agreed on. It was that the Anabaptist had to be eliminated. There was a group, a part of the Reformation called Anabaptist, and they insisted on rebaptizing adult believers, and they rejected infant baptism. Anabaptists were killed by the thousands. You say, Brian, that can't be true. They were killed by the thousands for their belief in baptism. Because if the church doesn't control baptism, well, they've lost control over people and who can get into heaven. It was a big deal. It was such a big deal that in 2005, Catholics and Lutherans came together and it publicly acknowledged to the Mennonites who ended up proceeding the Anabaptists, that's where they come from, they publicly asked for forgiveness of their sins as a church of whole for killing for their predecessors killing all of these people during this time. So when you say, well, people broke away, yeah, and they were, they were killed for this issue. It wasn't something done lightly. They were killed because they said, no, no, the Bible doesn't teach that. And they took a stand because they wanted to follow the commands of Christ rather than the invention of man. So according to the Bible, baptism, well, we are baptized because Jesus commands us to be baptized. In order to be baptized, what's required is a confession of faith. It's saying that you believe that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. And a confession of faith is required because it's when you go public with your faith. And it also symbolizes what Christ has done in your life. It symbolizes the death, burial, and resurrection. This new you. And so I say all of this to say, that if you haven't been baptized after your confession of faith, what are you waiting on? As a church, we want to celebrate with you. We want you to encourage us. And if you didn't know, when you were baptized, it encourages all of us in the faith. And as a church, we are here to help you take that next step of faith. And is it a big deal? Do you get a little nervous? Do you get a little bit scared? Of course so did I when I took that oath of enlistment. Getting up in front of people, doing something, is usually a big deal. And if it feels like a big deal, it's probably because it is. You are publicly confessing that Jesus Christ is your Lord and Savior. And why wouldn't you want to do that? Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we come to you and thank you for Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Father, we thank you that he, Jesus, has come to take care of our sin, the separation from you, and through him we can be saved. Father, we thank you for baptism, the right you gave us to follow when we put our faith and trust in you. Father, I pray that you speak to those who need to take that next step of obedience and baptism. Father, I pray that they will have the boldness for Jesus, the boldness for his commands to be baptized, to reflect what you have done in their life. Father, we thank you and love you. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.